Christmas Day last year, I had to ring my family from a prison cell. My dad is 74, he's crying. You know, my mum's crying, the family are trying their best. I would never, ever have predicted that I would have got myself in a situation where I would need to be taken away from society. I absolutely loved being drunk. I loved taking drugs. It was so much fun. And it was fun to be around. You know, yeah. it was a really, really great time. And there was no consequences. No, I've never struggled with the word God. You know, God for me, um, God is everything or God is nothing. And for me today, God is everything. Hello and welcome to 12 Steps and 12 Questions. My name is Silvio and I'm an addict. This pod is full of personal and inspirational stories of recovery from addiction. And in every episode, I'll ask each guest the same 12 questions about their life, addiction and recovery. Quick warning, there will be some graphic descriptions and a healthy amount of swearing. Hello, Robin. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me on this new edition of 12 Steps and 12 Questions. I'm so glad that you're here. Can you introduce yourself quickly, please? Well, thank you for inviting me here. Um, my name is Robin. I am 47 years old and I'm very much an addict. Let's move straight to question one. Question one is, did you have any adverse childhood experiences? If you'd asked me that question, maybe two years ago, I would have said no. You know, I had a beautiful childhood. I have two parents who are still married. I am still loved. Um, what's happened in the last couple of years has made me really look into my childhood. And some of the way I behave today has been highlighted by some traumatic experiences as a child that mm. wouldn't necessarily be deemed traumatic, um, but it certainly has affected how I behave today. It's an interesting way of phrasing it. Um, they wouldn't be deemed traumatic. Now, yes, it is true that there are sort of clear, I guess, psychological, psychiatric guidelines for what is considered to be an adverse experience or an adverse childhood experience, that's right. And yet, <clears throat> sometimes I speak to people who say, oh, nothing happened really, except for I was beaten, this, that, and the other. And sometimes I speak to people who May have, not, may have had a, what it looks like they come from a quote-unquote good home and so on, but still there were, there were traumatic experience and experiences, and I'm, I'm one of those people. So what were yours? Well, my mum is an alcoholic, and she drank for a couple of years. Um, while I was at maybe 11 or 12, now... Um, what I had to do was look after her when she was drunk. Mm. I would have to help her to bed. She would often ring the Samaritans. She would cry. You know, so I would just kind of assist her and help her, you know, help her get to bed. Um, you know, speak to the Samaritans, explain she was fine. You know, so albeit I, at the time, it wasn't deemed traumatic because I wasn't hurt, I wasn't hit. You know, there was nothing really scary. But, you know, play the tape forward to me in my 40s and that has very much been huge in mm. how 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 my life has is today now i would have to look this up but i have a hunch i'm pretty sure actually that having an alcoholic parent is deemed to be an adverse childhood experience even by sort of psychiatric guidelines but apart from uh, whether it is or isn't and and apart from any kind of guideline 
being the parent of your parent at a really early age, and I know this from experience, is a difficult situation. How old were you then, you say? Um, 11 or 12. Yeah. 11 or 12, maybe so a little bit older. the Samaritans. On the phone to the Samaritans. Um, my dad used to work, and so you would know my mum was drinking if she snored, so I would roll her on her side so she didn't snore to try and help hide the fact that she was drinking. Mm. So I was kind of just trying to protect her and look after her. Mm. Um, what some would say now is an original wound. You know, yeah. in, in you know the psychology terms, they would say that that would be deemed an original wound. Yeah. Um, so, but at the time, you know, I just felt I was helping my mum mm -hmm. because, you know, she wasn't in a great space. And you did what you had to do to get by. Yeah. Mm. I was just helping. Mm. Yeah. Did you have any awareness around this at the time that this was maybe out of the ordinary? Not at all. Mm. Absolutely not at all. And I was there. My sister is uh, six years older than me, so she'd left. It was only me and mum at home. Dad worked a lot. So it was just me to kind of help her. Mm. And at the time, and even f it didn't even register that this would be an issue. But I really didn't. It was just something that was a couple of years of our lives. She subsequently um, is clean and sober and has been for 34 years um, through Alcoholics Anonymous, um, which is a huge achievement. You know, it's fantastic, it's wonderful. You know, so, but, you know, at the, at the time when I look back, wasn't an issue, but. As I was just saying, you know, being the parent of your parent, when you are at, at, at an age where you're not really actually able to do that sort of thing, right? You're not really able to look after an adult when you're 11. Mm -hmm. That must have, um, that must have been quite a lot for you and way too much, really. I think now it really was. Mm. It really was. Mm. You know, I was very scared. I was very scared for her. I didn't know what to do. Mm. You know, yeah. it was... Uh, so there's a lot of fear there. Certainly. Yeah. And what would, what would happen if your dad did notice that your mum had drawn? He, he would just get really... Like, he was also scared. He, he is into an addict. He loves that very much. They, you know, they're wonderful. He would, you know, he'd just get really angry. We're not angry. We'd just get, oh, Craigie, what we're going to do? You know, how do I help her? He just, we were all a bit lost, really, because we didn't know. Yeah, it's difficult to witness. Yeah, yeah. But he's, he, he, he's, he's not an angry man. He just loves her very much, and he still loves her to this day. <laughs> you know, they've been together forever. But, yeah, it was a difficult time. Yeah, yeah. So here you are, you're 11, you're 12, your mum is an alcoholic and you're trying to protect her, you are trying to help your, all these things. Coming to our question too, which is what did the moment you first got hooked, the fun times, what did that look like? So if we're picking up at 11 and 12, how did you get into drinking? How did you get into drugs perhaps even? Well, two years in advance of that at 13, um, I got a part-time job. Um, collecting milk money. Now it's a very northern thing. I don't know. Um, where I would go on an evening and where the guys on the, the boys on the morning would deliver milk, I would um, go for the money. And I was then um, in a position where I found people to mm. help me acquire things to change the way I felt. And at that point, when all of my other friends were still playing with dolls and houses and makeup. I was trying my very best to find people 
yeah. find things to change the way I felt, which would include gas. You know, where you would put it in between your teeth and I would persuade people to buy me glue. And, you know, to me that was normal. Mm. And I can't, and at the time, there was no real reason why I wanted to do that, but I just wanted to change how I felt from 13. Right, okay. Now, this job that you have, mm -hmm. so you were collecting milk money because you wanted to earn a bit of cash on the side, like pocket money. Yes. So you didn't want to play with dolls and things any longer. You were out of that. You, you were sort of a little adult almost. Yeah, possibly um, hyper-independent, even at that age where, you know, I wanted to make my own money. I wanted to be self-sufficient. Um, but it also, given me, like I said, given me the opportunity to find people who uh, I would get, the, I would ask them, you know, this was not something that was put upon me. And over the years, many people say, well, it was their fault. It was other people's fault. It was never, it was always me. I always, I instigated, please, will you get me this? Please, will you get me that? So you sorted out? I did indeed. I did so indeed. the very first time, so you'd been, you're 13, you'd been sober, obviously, all your life up until then. Mm hmm what was the first one and how did you even come upon it? Because did you at 13 just walk up to someone and say, kind of, can you give me a bit of laughing gas? Or? No, no. Um, I think it would have been baby sham at Christmas from an alcohol point of view. You know, that would have been an occasional thing. I can't recall that, but what I can recall very clearly is having this job to meet boys and I would say, they would introduce me to this, the gas that you would actually get, which goes into lighters. And you put it between your teeth and it makes your head go funny. And then you have a very bad headache afterwards. But it changes how you feel. And it's cheap. And and then we would progress to glue sniffing where you'd put it in a bag. And it's it's very it's it's very crude, but it's mm. it's it's a way to change how you felt. And uh, I used to love it. Mm. I used to love it. And then from that, the same boys who were older would then introduce me to cannabis and from cannabis to acid and from acid then I kind of moved in different circles yeah and did you not retain your girlfriends of that time then so in other words when you you speak a lot about you know hanging out with these older boys and and so on and so forth or did you not have was impacted was there were there any consequences early on how was you like for instance at school or something like that or were you okay at school so? I was okay at school yeah yeah. Consequences did not come around till decades later. Well, wow. okay. So at this point, was there any awareness of what you were doing that none whatsoever? It was just normal. It was normal. Yeah. Now I look back, I think it was absolutely insane, mm. but it was very normal. Yeah. Were you the only girl? Yeah, only girl. Mm. Mm. And that didn't sort of ring any bells either. No. So here you are, you are, how old are you here? 15, 16? Yep, moving out of the acid towards the ecstasy mm, mm. and more into alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And when did alcohol become something you would perhaps rely on? I've probably relied on alcohol daily for three decades. So maybe from about 16, 17, I would start to drink daily. Mm. As a fun thing at the time, quote unquote. Very much a fun thing. Mm. And also, um, in time, I would... It would be a treat. It would be seen to, it would, to help me sleep. Mm. It would be seen as a great thing. It sounds almost a little bit like this all sort of happened. Tell me if I'm wrong. 
undercover, like perhaps under, on the surface you looked like a normal girl, but you know you would, you know you would use all these substances to change the way you feel, and people wouldn't really notice. Am I, am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. And that even to this day, people go, "No, you you just do not look like an addict. You don't. Oh, you should be an addict, <laughs> absolutely, because externally." You know, I have had great jobs, I've achieved a great deal, I have yeah. children. Yeah. But behind the scenes, I've had often a secret life mm. um, for many years. It's interesting because I can relate to both really in, in that when I started using drugs again back in my in my 40s, um, it was all very much a behind the scenes job. Was, you know, my, my, my job wasn't affected at this point and... And so I know that side of the of the of the coin, but I also know the other side. So when I was a kid, for instance, and a young man between what sixteen and twenty three or so, it was written all over me. Here's someone with problems. You could see that I externalized it a lot. You didn't have that at all. I know. Probably the opposite. Mm. Um, I was uh, very lively. I was very, you know loud and fun to be around because I I love the effects produced by alcohol. I absolutely loved being drunk. I loved taking drugs. It was so much fun. And it was fun to be around. You know, yeah. it was a really, really mm. great time. And there was no consequences. So no, there was was not an issue then. Yeah, yeah. So you were having a good time, really? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you didn't think that drinking or using drugs was a problem or would even perhaps become a problem at some point? Well, again, um, I always took too many drugs and drank more than absolutely everybody else around me. So you were a fun chick. <laughs> I was indeed. Yeah, I was yeah. indeed. Okay. You know, there was. I was never short of inv invitations to go anywhere mm, mm. Um, because I was fun to be around. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, when I was starting to become out of control but really party my mum was becoming very sober and very well so at home I could see my mum attending daily meetings doing service we had the serenity prayer around the house people would come to the house when they were not so well should so she was becoming very well and I was starting my journey of real just real addiction but for many years i find this fascinating so here you are you're the fun chick you're having a great time you clearly i think at the time we would have said something along the lines of oh, i can drink anybody under the table right using a bit more than everybody else would but at the same time your mum is sober she's in the program you know the program did she ever say anything to you she certainly did she could see you know that i didn't drink and use normally, that I could not stop once I started. She, she used to say, you know, when when you want help, there's help there. You know, the rooms are always going to be there for you. Are you done yet? As the years went on, she, she would say, are you done? Are you done? Have you had enough? So this preceded your own understanding of yourself as being an alcoholic or an addict? I think it was in parallel. So I... I think I always knew I was an addict from witnessing um, what my mum had gone through and how she had recovered and knowing that, you know, hearing 
you know, what addiction is and what alcoholism is, I knew I was always powerless over alcohol. I would say that I'm powerless. Once I start, I can't stop. But that still didn't want me to, it still wasn't enough for me to want to stop because I really enjoyed being drunk. I really enjoyed the fun times. So it was all you kept saying to me and offering, but I just didn't want it. Slowly but surely brings us to, to question three, which is, were there any consequences? What were your worst consequences, really? And finally, your rock bottom. So I drank and used for 30 years, wow. which is incredible. So from 13 to 43, I pretty much used every day. Wow. Um, and so alcohol mainly? Alcohol, very much so. Uh, cocaine and ecstasy um, and people. Right. I would use people. Yeah, I'd use people to change how I felt. Right. Can you expand on that? Yes, I would. Um, I would often have a secret life of meeting people and, you know, wanting text messages, wanting um, affirmations, you know, that type of thing. Mm. Mm. Sorry if I'm being a bit slow, but I mean, that's something that we all kind of have, don't we? Mm -hmm. You know, that we want people to, that we want people's attention mm -hmm. and attention seeking, you know. Mm. But an addiction means that one, you couldn't stop it when you wanted to, and two, it also means that you could never really get enough of it. So how would that manifest? It would manifest very secretly. Mm. So this was something that not many people, or in fact, nobody would know that I'd have secret friends mm. and, you know, often male friends. And, mm. you know, so I would use people to change how I feel. Mm. Mm. So by secret love affairs, that sort of thing. Very much so. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 Did you realise that this was part of... An addictive pattern or? Absolutely not. It's just something that I do. Yes. Again, it was something I did, but didn't understand it was part of my illness. It mm. was part of the ism of addiction. And it it's, goes way beyond. And as we know, it's never about the drink, the drugs, the people. It's, it's about us. It's mm. about me. And I had no idea this secret life that I was living with people was anything to do with the ism. It's, it was just what I did. Yeah. A little bit of excitement. Mm. Mm. So you're in your 20s now, I assume, by this point, or maybe a little further on. And how did the consequences manifest then? Slowly but surely or all at once? So we would have to, like I said, progressed to 30 years. I used for 30 years without any consequences. Loved it. Loved 30 it. years without consequences? Th 30 years without consequences. I would, it would get messy. I'd yeah. drink too much. I would, but nothing really, nothing that I could actually now recall as a, as a major consequence. So I never really ended up in hospital march in jail nope. or anything nope. like that? Nothing. Nothing mm. at all. Obviously parents were worried that I'd drink too much and it would all get a bit messy, but no great consequences. Mm. Fast forward to lockdown. So I'm in my early 40s. Um, just before lockdown, I met my husband. Mm. And we were two people who met 
and then fireworks kind of went off. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it, then please make the pesky AIs and algorithms work their 12th step. Hit like and subscribe. And it was insane. Mm. We were so not the right kind of fireworks, I'm hearing. At the time, there were fantastic fireworks, fireworks that I'd never felt before. Fireworks with a person that I'd... It was everything I wanted and more. So romantic fireworks. Romantic fireworks, sexual fireworks, intellectual fireworks, absolutely everything. Wow. Everything. I, to this day, adore this man. But the issue was that we are both addicts. And then when two people meet and we are both addicts, it mm. became very messy very quickly. Mm. Um, and we just couldn't get enough of anything and in lockdown you know it was really really challenging to clarify so you're an alcoholic and a drug user mm-hmm. your husband um he had been sober for 15 years but he'd relapsed a year before meeting me on alcohol yes right okay so you get together it's romanticism it's sexual fireworks it's all sorts of things he relapses after 15 years. He had before. Oh, yeah, year, before the year, you. Yeah. Right, okay. So he met you on a relapse, really. Mm-hmm. And, and then lockdown hits. Yeah. Ouch. Ouch. So when everybody else was buying toilet paper, I was spending £2,000 with Majestic Wine Warehouse and couldn't get enough wine in my house. I was on the dark web ordering thousands of pounds of cocaine. I, I I couldn't get any higher. I just, you know, it, it literally was insane. Yeah, I also did that during lockdown. I said I didn't really buy a lot of toilet paper either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just, it, you know, it was the beginning of the end. So it spiralled. It really spiralled because I didn't have the work. I didn't have, I didn't have a structure. I didn't, all bets were off. There was, yeah. there was no constraints whatsoever and, it you know, but it seems to be a time in people's mid-40s that the, that the consequences start and that's when they did start for Tell me. me about <laughs> it's, it's the time. It yeah. is that time. Yeah. And I think also, and I've heard this now a few times, of course, and I know this from my own experience, lockdown was a really weird time for everybody. And for us addicts, often, not always, for some actually, it brought the necessary moment to surrender. But for many of us who weren't ready to surrender quite yet, it actually brought about, if anything, the beginning of the end. It it, it accelerated, it was petrol on the flames. Absolutely, mm. completely. Mm. Were you aware of this? No, none of that. Well, I was very, very quickly coming into lockdown because that was the first time I rang my mum and said, I, I can't stop. Mm. I'm like, it's getting really bad. Mm. You know, I really, I just could not stop. Mm. Um, and that was the first time I asked her for help. And that was the first time I, I went into to rehab. Yeah, yeah. Before we touch on that, how long was that period, do you reckon, from the beginning of lockdown until this happened, until you sort of started speaking to your mum? Six months. Six months. And so there was some awareness then obviously there that 
shit, this is getting out of hand. Oh, oh hell. Very much so. Mm. It's getting very scary then. Mm. It was really getting scary. How was it scary to you? Because I couldn't stop. Mm. You know, and I hadn't... So you'd get up and you'd I start drinking and start drinking and using and, yeah, it was just... And every day, like, here, all right, tomorrow I'll not. Tomorrow I won't do it. Tomorrow, you know, I'll be... I'll, uh, tomorrow we'll have a fresh start. And then I'd wake up and give it a couple of hours and he'll say, oh, but there's nothing else to do, it's, you know. And... And how was that... With your partner, who you were with, with your husband, who you were with at that time, and you say he was also an addict, was he going through that same thing as you oh, were? yes. We both used to drink news every day. And mm. we were, it was exactly the same as carnage, but I wanted help. I could see that I just, I'd, I'd, at that time, I thought I was done. It got significantly worse. Um, but that was, for me, I really wanted to to ask for help and to yeah, start yeah. to stop. So that was your first moment really after all this time and 30 years is a long mm -hmm. time and that was the first time where you thought actually I don't want this life anymore. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that was the, the start of the end. That was when I said I'd, I can't do it anymore. Mm. I think to call it the beginning of the end is really quite it's quite apt really in many ways because I had similar a similar moment after terrible, also in lockdown, terrible, terrible benders. And I thought to myself, this isn't fun anymore. From there then, really, often, sadly, I have to say, that's when the worst times begin because usually we try to come off it, but we don't succeed right away, do we? So what did that time look like from there? Well, from within a space of three years, my life, got absolutely out of control. So right. in from lockdown of 2020 mm. up until a year ago, mm -hmm. nearly exactly a year ago, mm. uh, my life just absolutely fell apart. Wow. I, um, I have been to rehab seven times. I lost custody for a very short time of my children due to my using. So social services got involved. They did. Yeah. They did, sadly. Yep. Um, I've had an, an ankle tag to monitor my alcohol use, like, which I offered to, you know, to wear for the courts to, to kind of, you know, and for somebody, you know, to wear an ankle tag for 24 hours a day to prove your alcohol use. It's, that was... Right. So this tag, for those who don't know, measures... Measures your alcohol use. So you wear it 24-7 mm. and you have a box in your house and it sends the information whether you've used alcohol to the box and then you, it goes to the courts. Right, okay. And it's to help. Well, it, it was for me to help my me get custody back of my children and to prove that I had stopped drinking at the time I had. Right. Um, because over the three years, um, I had long periods of sobriety, but then I things would crop up. Mm. Um. And again, this was where the original wound of trying to help my mum came in to, into sight. So I was, I'd met my husband and he was in a dark place. So I then tried to fix him like I tried to fix my mum. Mm. So she was an addict and I wanted to fix her. Then I met my husband and he was an addict and I needed to fix him. 
Right. So fix him mean, means help him drink less or not drink, just, be sober. I, I, well, I just wanted to, to fix him. Yeah. There was a lot of things going on in his life when I met him and I just wanted to fix him. So I was repeating with him what I did with her, you know, what I did yeah. with her. But, I, you know, I wasn't aware of it at the time. At the same time, managing my, you know, addictions that were out of control. So I had so much going on. Yeah, way too much, clearly. Because when you're in that space, you can't really, I mean, you can never really fix someone else anyway, but you can't really look after someone else if you can't look after yourself, can you? Very much so. So there's things, like I said, very, very rapidly started to to go. Um, and then I discovered my husband had, you know, been unfaithful and I struggled with coping with that. So I would relapse and that would happen repeatedly and I'd be promised, he promised me he wouldn't do it and then he would do it again and then I'd relapse and every time I'd relapse, things got so much worse. Um, I once jumped through a window because I was convinced, well, actually I was trying to climb into his house to see if other women were in the house and I smashed my face and broke my arm. And, you know, did you... Let's just, let's just <laughs> slow this down for a second. You were convinced that your husband was in a house somewhere mm -hmm. and that he was with another woman mm -hmm. and you jumped through the window. Yes. Through the glass of the window? No, no, no. I'd it was a sash window and I'd pulled the sash down and I was, uh, but I couldn't pull the sash up. So I had to go through the top bit. Obviously I was drunk and I was trying to get onto the kitchen bench, but I missed the bench because I was drunk and went straight to the floor. And so I've, I've still got a lump on my head and I broke my arm. Yeah, it was this. This was insane. Now the things were really starting to become very dark. Mm. You know, I was using an awful lot of cocaine at the time, which wasn't helping. But you know, ultimately he was having an affair. Yeah. You know, he was seeing other people, and I did repeatedly catch him. And that, you know, because he has different addictions, you know, it was just so messy. So there's. Almost like sort of cogs in a wheel in a way where, if I understand this correctly, you're drinking and using it totally got out of control. Mm -hmm. You're doing massive amounts of, of cocaine, you're drinking every day. Yes. At the same time, you are quite fixated on this other person, on your husband, who is suffering from his own illness and his own demons. And you are often suspecting and quite rationally suspecting that he's with someone else and you'll try and find out that you find out that that is the, the case that would make you relapse again even if you had short periods of sobriety beforehand that's very accurate that's exactly how it was and every time i would find out the consequences of me finding out and feeling betrayed and feeling abandoned would be catastrophic for me and it got worse and worse. And as, as the book says, it gets worse, never better. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so what happened, um, The my last drink um, was I discovered my husband had betrayed me with a prostitute mm -hmm. and he had loaned her um, a six-figure amount of money because she'd said she needed to buy a house and didn't want to miss out on a house. I read an email. And um, and then she wouldn't give it back. So I found out where she lived 
and I went to her house to ask it back. Didn't end well. Events occurred, and cutting a somewhat complicated story down, I ended up in prison. Hmm. Um, on remand, um, over Christmas. So I left two children. You know, this was, you know, the insanity. We're drinking alcohol and me trying to, you know, get the money back and get my marriage back on track and fix this man and trying to solve everything and make everything right again. Just ended up in carnage. It just ended up with me being insane, arrested in a police cell and then in a women's prison. Nobody grows up to become a criminal, I don't think. And But sometimes, I suppose, if you start committing crimes really early on in your life and then you find yourself in a cell a few years later, I think it's fair to say that you could have seen it coming. Now, in your case, you probably did not see this coming. So here you are. You're in a police cell after having committed a fairly serious crime yeah. by the sounds of it. How did you feel? I was terrified, but I was more terrified of what was going on in my head. You know, it was, I just knew that that I wasn't well. I, I was insane. You know, that not in the insanity of hearing voices or, you know, not being able to differentiate the truth from the fiction, just things had just become too much for me to cope with in life. And... I had never been arrested. I had never been in trouble with the police. I had never had a fight. I had never been in a police car in my life up until the four weeks before being in prison. Now, that was huge. That that was huge for me. You know, being in a, a police station and a police cell and then moved to a women's prison. So you were in a women's prison? Mm-hmm. Can you perhaps describe, if you want to, because I think, I mean, television series are made about this, about people who are not used to being in prison, being in prison for the first time and getting used to this and so on, being scared and, and so on. And I can't begin to imagine myself. So if you want to talk about it, what was that like for you? I mean, the first few days must have been almost like you're in it's someone else's life that you're living or something. It felt exactly like that. And even now, I sometimes struggle to really believe that it actually happened to us. To actually find myself in exactly the same buildings that you would see on the television, the cell doors, the, the, the flaps that people speak to you through, not having curtains, having a silver toilet that you have to go in front of another person. You know, the, the regime, it was terrifying and not feeling like I had anybody I couldn't I didn't have anyone to make a call and you had to wait to have a telephone call and to ring people to ask you to help because I was thinking well what's going on in the outside is people explaining that I shouldn't be here and you know how do I how do I get out of this situation who's going to help us you know and how terrified my family would be how are my children dealing with the fact that their mother is now in prison how old were your children then? 16 and 12. Now this is, you know, 
what I have to deal with on a daily basis now are the children often reciting and recalling events. One of which is my daughter said to me, she said, Dad, Mum, Dad called and said, you know, when you get home, you're going to have to have a conversation because something serious has happened. And she says, Mum, she said, I got off the school bus and I was walking up my street to Dad's house. She said, I thought they were going to tell us you were dead. She said, I was preparing myself. She said, this is a 12-year-old girl, you know. She said, I walked up that street and I was just thinking, how am I going to cope with my mum not, not being alive? She said, I thought you were dead. She said, so she said, when they said prison, she said, oh, thank God. She said, I can deal with that. She said, at least you weren't dead. You know, and it's like, but, you know, how I, the my actions resulted in my children having to deal with that. And that's just horrific. It's horrific for her to deal with. But for me, for my actions to put her in that position is, is so... In a position where she's relieved rather than shocked that you're in prison. Yeah. But then again, there's the, then there's the realisation of, you know, how long am I going to be there, you know? And, and it was over Christmas. You know, Christmas Day last year, I had to ring my family from a, from a prison cell. My dad is 74, he's crying. You know, my mum's crying, the family are trying their best. I'd, I wasn't able to buy any Christmas presents in time. So my mum's mom, my wonderful, she'd helped. They'd done their best. But ultimately, you know, it wasn't the same. You know, they just got through it. And yeah. It's not really something you can cover up, you know, as much as other stuff that you do when you use it. Exactly. Yeah. No, this is, this is, this was the end of the road. The, mm. the book says jails, institution and death. Yeah. So I'd been into rehab seven times from, from the first time in, lo in lockdown. Mm. I'd go, I'd come out, there'd be another issue, I'd, back and forth. Mm. Then jail. I would never, ever have predicted that I would have got myself in a situation where I would need to be taken away from society. Now, how I view that now is very, very different to how I viewed it at the time. Now I view it that God had to take me away to show me a different perspective. He really had. He really had to take me out of somewhere to show me what I needed to see, and I believe that today. Mm. I, re I, I very much regret, you know, how it affected the family, but I see it entirely different today. Um, Let's come to question four, and you know, thinking about your girl who, who you know thought that you may be dead, and and being a relief that you were actually being in prison rather than being dead. But still, I think for us addicts who use and drink this way, there is. The possibility of dying is always is always there, right? When you drink and use in a certain way, that's something that we know could occur, right? With the way we drink and we use. My question four is, did you ever want to die? Did you consider suicide? I mean, maybe even, you know, once you were in prison and you are stuck in this place and you are at your lowest, lower than you ever than you than you ever thought you could possibly sink to. Never. I have never, ever wanted to die. I absolutely love life. Mm. And it's never, ever occurred to me. Wow. Yeah, but it could be a yet. 
It does say jails, institution and death. Now, if I drink again, I will die. But it's probably unlikely through suicide. Who knows? But today, I have never, ever, never come into my head. You spoke about being in rehab seven times. Question five is, what other methods did you try to get sober before finding the rooms? So your mum is a recovered alcoholic. She's got, you know, decades of sobriety. So you know the rooms, you know what they're all about. Um, you've been to rehabs, which may have been 12-step rehab, maybe, maybe not. Did you try anything else? No. For me, I'd seen the magic happen for my mum. I'd watched her drink every day. Bottles hidden all over the house. Everything we've talked about earlier. And I watched how a 12-step programme can make a person who drank every day not drink. So for me, there was only ever one solution to recovery, but I needed to want it. And, you know, so I didn't even consider anything else. You were speaking about God just now. You said maybe God wanted to point you in a different direction, see things from a different point of view when you were in jail. Mm -hmm. Question six is, did you struggle with the word God when you came in? No, no, I've never struggled with the word God. You know, God for me, um, God is everything or God is nothing. And for me today, God is everything. Because, you know, my life is different today. And I, how I operated without God in my life ended up in carnage. And then when I asked for help and I worked the 12 steps and asked for the power to help me, you know, change. God helps me and he helps me on a daily basis. So I did not struggle with the concept of God. So even at the beginning, that wasn't an issue? For wasn't. Because it is an issue for many people. You've seen, been around the rooms and you know that this is something a lot of people struggle with, me included, who mm -hmm. struggled mm -hmm. with, you know, first when, when we first come in. So this wasn't a hindrance to you? To not at all. Not at all. Because my mum my talks about God, talk about, you know, Third step prayer. They, they, they were they were around the walls. It's it's not an issue at all. Never. Interesting, perhaps, how getting the right concept, the right concept, very much quote unquote. Maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but just for a second, just getting the right or a helpful concept of God rather than the right concept, a helpful concept of God rather than a what I consider to be for me personally a non-helpful. Um, slightly negative and, and punishing version, right, uh, which, which was in the way then later for me, you clearly didn't get that. You got a helpful version from the beginning. Because it was always mine from the beginning. I, was never, I wasn't brought up in a religious household. There was never any kind of church connotation to God. God was always just helpful. Mm. God was the answer. Wow. So there was never any other connotation other than a helpful God in your life. Useful. Question seven is, and you sort of touched on it just a little bit there earlier, how do you experience your higher power? Um, my life today with a higher power is peaceful. You know, very, very peaceful. So I use the word God as my higher power. So 
my relationship with God helps me live my life today. So in the fact of how do I manage situations with children, with work, with relationships, you know, I can ask for help now. You know, I'll say, how do I manage the situation? And everything I'm taught in the rooms, when I'll put it into action, it actually really, really changes how I've I live my life and it's great because it's it takes the pressure off me being trying to fix, solve, sort. It's just peaceful now. It's very peaceful, you know, in, in all aspects, you know, from, you know, trying to work with children and through work, you know, every every aspect of my life, I ask God to help me mm. on a daily basis, sometimes hourly and and. You know, there's been events in the last two years where I can't even doubt God's in my life. Mm. Like on certain things, you just think, wow, this this program is incredible. The God moments. Oh, incredible God moments. Incredible God moments. Sir, do you care to share one? You don't have to. I'd like to share the most unbelievable moment. So I went to prison for beating up and fighting with the prostitute who stole the six-figure amount of money from my husband and had slept with my husband. And I obviously, I'd had a lot of resentment, as you can imagine. <laughs> you Just slightly. Sorry, I'm laughing only oh, yeah, because, oh, yeah, oh. you know, for the listener, you know, the facial expression was, well, it was just a thing of beauty. Yes, you clearly <laughs> did have a lot of resentment, yeah. understandably so, perhaps. Yeah, because... At, at that time, I couldn't handle my emotions. I didn't know how to deal with situations. Now, I went to prison and um, and I had to make some big decisions about my life. And I had to make the decision that as much as I adored my husband and I actually am addicted to him, I had to have some separation from him. And so for months and months and months, and maybe 10 months, um, I didn't see him. I had to keep separate. I had to, to just recover you know, really recover, do everything in the programme. And, you know, I felt that if God was going to bring him back into my life, you know, he would. Um, so we, we communicate via email. You know, there's, you know, I love him so much and I miss him terribly, but I know that at the minute he's not right for me because I need to get well. And, uh, and we were conversing and um, on the Monday, a bit like addiction, he'd said, um, well, we've been blocked on WhatsApp. How about we unblock each other? This was Monday. You know, maybe, so this must have been a couple of months ago, shall we say. And uh, and we co- we're conversing. And I'd said, oh, well, actually, I'm, you know, going home. Long story short, I had gone to a CA meeting and he had said, you know, this awful woman has stolen this money and I've never seen her before. And and I've never seen her again. And he'd moved from Manchester to the Cotswolds. I live in the Northwest, but I, am, I do a lot of recovery in London. So after a Friday night um, cocaine anonymous meeting in London, which I love, I was strolling back to my accommodation with my ice cream through Covent Garden, potting around. And I stopped dead in my tracks because directly in front of me was my husband with that woman. And I, I honestly thought that I was seeing things. So I put my ice cream down and I took a photograph because I thought if 
I walk away from this situation, I am never going to believe that this is real. So I took a photograph and I walked away. You had the presence of mind. Just let me slow this down for a second. I admire this. Yet the, the presence of mind in this moment, which is a shock to the system, here you are, you're almost opening up just the, that door, that door, just a tiny, tiny bit. And here you are, you're doing your recovery, you're doing the right thing. And here you come upon your husband in London, although he lives in the Cotswolds, with that woman. And you had the presence of mind of taking a photo. I find that admirable. Um, what I also did is I, I took a pause. God's in the pause. Yes, yes. And I turned around because I just couldn't. And I, they had their backs to me. And in it's in Covent Garden, so I ran around the back because I was thinking, is it really them? Is it an hour? I just, so I was standing on the street and I said to God, and, and I was going to look and is it them? Is it not? I couldn't believe it. And I said to God, good, what do I do? You know, Really, what do I do? And I waited, and God said, "Come and say hello." Sorry, I'm not, <laughs> not sure why, but okay. So, I walked calmly towards them, and they were just around the corner, so they did not see me coming. But I'd obviously seen them from one side, and I walked round the corner. I looked at her, I looked at him, and I said, "Hello there," and I walked away, and I walked away with God. My hands didn't shake. My heart wasn't raised. I literally walked away with God. Wow. He took me away. And it, I just felt like I'd been hugged down the street. And I couldn't believe that that event, and I had never seen my husband for months. He denied seeing her. So to, to bump into them both in Covent Garden, at 20 past 10, after I'd been out for dinner, after I'd gone for an ice cream, and I was casually strolling my way back to my accommodation, to put us all in that situation, who else would have done that other than God? And God needed to show me what I needed to see. Yeah. God's, God is doing for me what I cannot do for myself. As the book says. As the book says. And wow. to actually, you know, so again, the, the step the step nine promises of you learn how to handle situations that used to baffle you. Situations for me used to baffle me, so all I used to do was drink and get insane. But I now could handle a situation that used to baffle me. I admire your strength. and It is only if you walk hand in hand with your higher power, I think, can you go through that experience like that. There's no other way. I agree with you there. I didn't know. This program has taught me how to... I didn't know how to handle situations other than that. I literally would have just gone mad. I'd have gone, was it swearing? I, it didn't occur to us. It, you know, that's the program in action. That's that's how when you work this program. I'm not doing this. God is doing this. Yes, He really is. I didn't know what to do. I just asked, and He said, and then He said, "Walk away," and I did. You're speaking of the program, which brings us to question eight. Which parts of the steps were the most difficult for you? I guess the amends process, mm. I think. You know, I caused a lot of damage to my family, to my parents, and to the person, um, you know, with the issue. So, Did you make amends to her? Is it okay for me to ask? Not as yet. 
there is a restraining order in place. <laughs> Which could, yes. Yeah, so that might be an issue. Yeah, no, that that, that would be clearly an issue, yeah. Yes. But yeah. it's interesting, though, because to those who, who may not have done their amends yet, or, you know, there are moments, amends aren't always a straightforward process. Actually, mostly they really aren't. And, and sometimes you can't make an amend because of such things. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, and for other reasons, of course, you know, so this is fascinating. Mm -hmm. right? okay. But you made quite a few other amends, I take it. Yeah, yeah. And, and the living amends to my children, you know, to to stay sober, to do the right thing. You know, and that's, you know, that's all they've ever wanted. And even my parents, you know, you know, by being sober and, you know, working the program, it's it's all I can offer. Well, it's quite a lot, I think. <laughs> the next question, question nine is, which character defects give you most trouble? Resentment, jealousy and anger. Right. They're the... They're the key things. I can go back. If I can if I sit long enough in my own head, yeah. I can start with the resentment of why did he do this and she didn't repay this money and why did she not and why did he not ask it? I could I could get myself into a right model about yeah. that and then it would then lead to anger and then lead to jealousy and you know, it's it could get messy. Yeah. It, that washing machine of thoughts. Oh, of thoughts. I could, I, that could really get messy. Um, but for today, um, you know, I use the book. I use the sick man's prayer. I use the acceptance prayer a lot. You know, I just use the tools. And then when you use the tools, it they work. That's... You know, it's very simple. Simple, not easy. Yeah, simple, not easy. Quite right. Question 10. What's the best thing recovery has given you? Oh, there's been so much. In a very short space of time, from a jail cell um, to um, four days away from one year of sobriety. Well done. Thank you. In the last year of my life, my life has changed. Um, I have my children, um, I have a peaceful life, I am much less insane, <laughs> um, things are calm, I, I have a, two great jobs, you know, I have a home, I have a car, I have, I have peace of mind, you know, and that's all I can ask for from the insanity to now a life you know, where I'm not insane and crazy and chaotic. And I just don't, I couldn't dream of going back to that. I've, I've, I've lost a lot. You know, I, I'm now not married. You know, I have been, you know, single and managing on my own for a year. And I haven't been single and managed ever on my own from being in my teens. So this has been great but I've got a relationship with God now you know God's got me you know God went to court with me and God helped me do things that's new that where I'm scared I'll take God you know if I go places God's got says you know so I'm not alone and I'm not alone with God but I'm also not alone now because I very much have 
thrown myself into the fellowship. Um, uh, I do lots of AACA, you know, events. So I have a different life, you know, a hugely different life to what I had. I don't, you know, there's a lot that I don't have, but I've got so much more. Mm. Things that keep coming back and I keep hearing at this stage and that I cherish so much in my own life are freedom and peace of mind. Now, in your case, quite literally freedom. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember that when I first met you, we first met in the rooms of Cocaine Anonymous, uh, you were wearing an ankle tag for a start. And mm -hmm. uh, you wore that for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I did indeed. Um, freedom and peace of mind. I don't think that you have to be an addict in recovery to really see that freedom, uh, that peace of mind in particular is something that so many people struggle with or lack thereof, of course. Mm -hmm. Nothing's better, really. Oh. Even if the outside, even if you could have more stuff on the outside, being away from the craziness, the madness, as we call it, is um, perhaps the most precious gift there is. Certainly. Mm. Absolutely. Next question is, what would you say to a newcomer or someone wondering if they're an addict? Wow. Um... Um, I find that difficult to answer because mm -hmm. I think, I think with me, you know, I always knew the solution. I saw the solution, but until you really, really want it, until you really, really need it, you know, it's, it's not the right time for you. And, uh, you know, so if, if new people are coming in, just listen, see if it's for you. If it's not for you, then. Yeah, this is what we see all the time, keep coming back. And I kept coming back and I kept coming back and I kept coming back. And then when I really wanted it and really needed it, it, it was absolutely there for us. Mm. And it will be for everybody else who wants it and needs it. Wonderful. And our last question, which is, what do you want your higher power to say to you, quote unquote, at the pearly gates? Wow. Um, I think God, my higher power, will say to me at the pearly gates is, you made some mistakes, Laura. You hurt some people. And you hurt yourself. But, you know, I'm not going to be defined by my mistakes. I'd like to hope that moving forward, you know, and for the last year that I've... I've improved myself, I've improved my family. You know, I'm not my past, I'm not my mistakes, but I've got so much to give to women in recovery, so much to give to women who have lost their children, who have been to prison, who couldn't stop using, who were in relationships that, despite how much they loved them, was killing them. You know, I can help those women, you know, and I really, really want to, because, you know, I've, I've ticked the boxes. You know, I've, I've earned my seat, as they say. I've absolutely earned my seat. And all I've got is experience. And, and you know, if I get, God will say, you, you made some mistakes, but you've like spent hopefully the rest of my life making up to it and helping others. And that's what the program says, what the book says. And what I, what I, I really aim to do it. I really, I've got nothing but experience, but you know, it works. I'm, I'm living proof. Beautiful. Robin, this, conversation has been deeply moving for me and I'd like to thank you for your courage for your honesty 
It's exemplary, really. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me. It's been a pleasure. Wow, that was quite something. Was it? <laughs> I think it was <laughs> I lived it. It's, it's not, it's, it isn't the usual tale. It's there's so many facets to what happened in my life and addiction and addict, other addicts and everything just happens. It happened for me at once. And mm-hmm. Those three years in, in, between that first, you know, we were saying that that first, when you first come to realize that you want to stop mm-hmm. until you actually do stop, mm-hmm. that time is particularly difficult. And those three years must have been really helpful for you. I can't put it into words. Mm. I honestly, I really can't. When I look back, it's it's been really, really, really dark. It's really interesting because I find, certainly for me, from when I said no good can, can, can ever come of this. I want to stop using cocaine. I wasn't even prepared for whole sobriety back then, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I, I knew that all chemicals had to go. Mm-hmm. I knew this. In my heart of hearts, mm-hmm. I knew this. The first thing that happened, it made it worse. Yeah. It progresses at the same time. It, it's, it's contradictory. Mm-hmm. It's something I think only us addicts can understand. And, and from then, it really... I was catapulted into into the progression was just terrible and, and until I finally hit my rock bottom and, mm-hmm. and, and came in. And the way you're describing that journey for you is excruciating, really. It was so bad. It was so bad from just using and breaking bones and, you know, one tag and then obviously they, they go into prison and then I was bailed to London instead of where I live in the Northwest and having the restrictions of, of the ankle tag and a curfew and and not being able to go on licensed premises, there was, you know, it was insane that time. That why would they, why would they bail you to London? I'm not familiar with the process, so, as opposed to where you were originally from, so that you can't get... So I can't, I couldn't contact, yes, correct. Yes, I see, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then, sense. lo and behold, I bump into them in Covent Garden. Yeah. <laughs> Irony of ironies, of Absolutely. course, you know. Yeah. That, you know. But no judicial system can ever foresee that sort of a thing, you know. No, no, no. Yeah. Do you feel that you, we, we've spoken for a good hour and it was, as I was just saying, it was really moving and, and, and fascinating. Do you feel that you've left anything out? Is there anything else that you feel that belongs in there that you didn't say? I don't think so. Any ground we didn't cover? Oh, this, I could, I, I could talk about the carnage and I could talk about recovery so much, you know, but what's great is I've got, I've got a lifetime to do that, you know, in the rooms, you know, we can, you can, because things crop up in different scenarios. You think that happened to me, I felt like that. Oh yes, things I've sometimes forgotten, you know, but overall, I think we've talked about the real big things. The nuts and bolts. The nuts and bolts of, you know, how, how it went from fun to not fun to, absolute despair to then recovery so it's yeah yeah it's a complete story right there (laughs) (laughs) brilliant thank you so much again robin thank you for being here again it was my pleasure we've come to the end of this episode thank you for listening if you've enjoyed it and would like other addicts and alcoholics to hear it then please make the pesky ais and algorithms work their 12th step hit like and subscribe While this pod is based on the 12-step recovery program, it's not officially affiliated with any 12-step fellowship. 
12 steps and 12 questions is not substance or behavior specific, it's fully self-supporting and not-for-profit. And you know this next bit. It's not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy and it neither endorses nor opposes any causes.